Well, what is the, the great need today? Is it a, a new prime minister to sort out Brexit? Is it for Scotland to become an independent nation? Well, no. It's something deeper than a political challenge that we face today. Is it social problems? I was reading about how completely overcrowded our prisons are because of the ongoing problems of crime in Scotland. We read ongoingly of the problems of sexual abuse of women and children, the problems of poverty, of, of drug addiction, of family breakdown, of, of hatred and bigotry in our society. Now, these are big problems. But the Bible tells us there's something deeper that's the problem than these social problems. The Bible has been telling us from the book of Romans that we have worship problems. We have a problem with God, or, or more pointedly, God has got a problem with us. That all the moral chaos of our society, all the disordered desires that we find in ourselves, are the evidence that we, having turned our back on God, God has turned his back on us. As the Apostle Paul has put it, God has given us over to our sinful desires. That's what we've been learning in the book of Romans. And it'll help you now just to open your Bibles back up to the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it'll really help you to have one. So don't be frightened of sticking your hand up. I'm sure we can still get you one if you need one. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome in the first century, and he's pointing at the pagan culture in Roman society to show that God's anger and his condemnation are clearly visible in the rebellious culture of Rome. And of course, the same observations could be made today. In some ways, our culture is moving ever nearer back to a first century Greco-Roman culture, I think. Instead of thanking and worshipping the creator God who is clearly made visible in the wonder of his creation, its order and its beauty, we've taken all the good gifts from God uh, with, without acknowledging the giver. And worse than that, we've actually um, taken the good gifts and end up worshipping the gifts, living for the gifts, living for the stuff of the creation rather than living for the creator who has created it all. We have dishonored God. That's what he says in Romans chapter 1. And consequently, our great problem, and uh, I'm glad you're here today because no one's really talking about this out there. Our great problem is that we are under God's condemnation. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 18. You'll find this on page 1128 in the church Bibles, page 1128. Look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. This is the diagnosis of the Bible that our big problem is we're under God's condemnation. And our big need is to be right with God. Now there are lots of objections to this message of the Bible. Uh, Paul experienced them in the first century and we experience them today. I mean the atheist or the agnostic might say, well today... Well, I, I don't believe in God. 
I'm not bothered about God, even if he's there. I just get on with my own life. I don't really feel the need to be religious. It's all a bit boring. Sorry, just not interested. But of course, to think that God is not there and uh, wish that he was God not there, uh, and then to think that that means he's not there, is daft. To simply believe that he's not there and think, well, that sorts it, doesn't change the fact that he is there. It doesn't remove the problem. It would be just as foolish to be in a block of flats that are on fire and to think that simply shutting the front door and settling on your sofa and just saying, well, I don't believe that there is a fire. That therefore that makes you safe. No. If there is a fire, there is a problem. And the Bible says that the fire is God's holy, righteous anger against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, Paul actually wants to move us to momentous good news. But before we get there, he kind of has to paint how seriously dark and bleak our situation is. He's going to get to the point of how we can be saved from God's wrath. Uh, but before he gets there, he, he needs to kind of deal with some of the objections that people would raise to this whole notion that God's angry at us for our godlessness and our wickedness. People don't want to hear that today. And last week we looked at a common objection uh, in, in the first part of chapter 2 of the respectable moralist. And the respectable moralist says this, well, I, I agree with you, Paul. I'm also appalled at all the evil and the wickedness I see in society. It disgusts me. It's wrong. I believe we need to fight against all injustices, all the wrongs that prevent human flourishing. And so you can see God, God can't be angry with me. I'm not one of those bad people that you talk about. I'm, I, I, I've never been in trouble with the law. I'm a respectable person. And we saw last week how he addresses that person, the respectable moralist. And he kind of points out to them, well, actually, do you not see you are a hypocrite? And therefore, you're under God's condemnation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Let me remind you of it. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And we reflected on that last week, didn't we? That we, uh, we, all, we all talk a good game. But actually, on closer examination, we often end up doing the things that we decry in others. And our great need is, whether we're rebels or respectable moralists, is to repent. Now look at chapter 2, verse 3. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgments? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. I've been recovering from a cold this week. And it seems to have affected my brain. So I have no points today. We're just going to soak in this passage together, all right? And I'm praying the Lord's going to do something good. 
So he's dealt with the, 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 the rebellious culture. He's dealt with the sort of the respectable moralists. And now he turns to one last final refuge that people turn to. It's those who take refuge in religion. And specifically, he has in mind those who are proud of their religious and ethnic identity as Jewish people. Now, when you understand the argument here, you, you, you will understand this is not remotely anti-Semitic. By the end of this sermon, that should be clear, uh, because it, it, it's not picking out Jewish people as having a particular problem, because we pointed out that we've all got a problem, whether we're Jewish or, or from not a Jewish background. Uh, after all, Paul is a, is, was a Jew, and he's writing of his own Jewish people. This is not an anti-Semitic statement. But two of the great boasts of the Jewish people in Paul's day was that, was that they had God's revealed words, the law, the Mosaic law, and that they had been given this covenant sign of male circumcision, which marked them out to be a special people of God. See, we've got this great markers. We've got, we've got the law and we've got our circumcision. We, we are God's special covenant people. And so we don't have to worry about God's anger or condemnation. This is our refuge. This is where we're safe. Now, Paul regularly debated his fellow countrymen. And you can see how basically it often went this way. He first of all went to a city. If there was a synagogue, he would go and speak to the synagogue. And quite quickly, he'd be booted out of the synagogue and you get a sense of why he got booted out as you read these very verses. His principle is clear in verses 12 and 13. It's not that you have the Mosaic law or even that you hear it being read. But the key issue is, do you obey it? Look at verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then Paul goes for the jugular. Uh, look at verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, there, there were very great privileges, as we're going to go on to see next week, from having this special revelation of God's will. Great privileges of being entrusted with the very words of God, and yet knowing them, and then going on to disobey them, 
makes us even more accountable. I was shaving this morning and I had the radio on and the, uh, the Sunday program was on and they were talking about a study that showed that atheists have a very similar moral code to Christians. And they were speaking of this as if it was surprising or that people would be surprised. But of course, if we know Romans chapter 2, there's no surprise at all. For God has created us all with a moral conscience. We have this whether we acknowledge God or not. The atheist, of course, has no objective basis for their own ethical position. But as they are made in the image of God, they do have a moral conscience. Our conscience tells us that stealing is wrong. I think you can go to almost any culture in the world, and that would be the case. And we have this whether we acknowledge God or not. But then to have the blessing of God's revealed law, the Mosaic law, where, where God clearly passed on one of the commandments, you shall not steal, it turns out that the moral law of God that is in some way written on our hearts is also there in black and white in the Mosaic law. And those who proudly have the Mosaic law say, well, look, yes, we know. We know what is right. You should not steal. And so when we can go, go ahead and end up stealing ourselves, it is doubly worse, isn't it? It just compounds our guilt. It increases our condemnation. Yeah, our conscience tells us that cheating on our wife is wrong. I think there's a, quite a clear moral sense. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you get cheated on, that's very upsetting. It's wrong. But from God's word, we, we learn you shall not commit adultery. And yet if we go ahead and, and, and in some way or other engineer things so that we get to ditch one wife and move on with the next, we've committed adultery. And our guilt and our condemnation is worse. And as Isaiah the prophet testified about the people of Israel in his day, their sinful behavior, their deliberate breaking of God's law meant that God's name was blasphemed amongst the nations because of them. Here was God's special, holy covenant people. And the nations were supposed to look at Israel and say, well, this is what God is like from looking at the people. And yet when the people behaved in all those sinful, rebellious ways, well, the world goes, well, what's with this God? His name is blasphemed among the nations because of you, says Isaiah the prophet to the people in his day, and, and Paul quotes it too here in this letter. Now here's the big argument so far uh, that Paul has made in this letter. Here's the bad news. We're going to get to the good news. Do hang in there for the good news, right? But you'll never get how glorious the good news until you've really felt the weight of the bad news. The story so far is this, this charge against the Gentile world in chapter 1. We all know that God is there from creation, and so when we fail to thank him as God, instead exchange the glory of the immortal God to worship other things, the fundamental problem is this, is that we have dishonored God. And this, in a heightened way, is exactly the same charge that Paul makes against his own Jewish people. They have dishonored God. Here's the summary that we're going to head to. We all fall short of the glory of God, whatever our ethnic background, Jewish or non-Jewish. 
We all fall short of the glory of God. We're all under his just condemnation. See, the problem with our sin and our disobedience is not so much that we hurt one another, which of course we do, but that it maligns and defaces the glory of God in the universe. Out of all of creation, we as human beings are made in the image of God. Uh, In a sense, the cosmos should look at us as human beings and say, okay, that's what God is like by looking at us. And our sin and our disobedience distorts and dishonors the glory of God. We fall short of the glory of God as we persist unrepentantly in disobeying God's word. It makes no difference whether we're rebellious, a moralist, who is sort of uh, more respectable, or whether we're religious. All are false refugees. That's his point here. The answer in the Bible is not about being more religious. Uh, Look at verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. Now, maybe there are some people here and um, you are ethnically from a Jewish family and that's wonderful. We welcome you. It's great that you're here. But my guess is that the majority are not. And this may seem a bit arcane to us, but the principle is clear and applies to us if we view uh, Christianity as a sort of a religious thing that we do that will make us safe merely by the externals. We could gain a false sense of security today that God's condemnation and anger is not against us because we call ourselves evangelical Christians. We love our Bibles. We love expository preaching. We go to Bible studies. We go to Bible conventions. Bible, Bible, Bible. But it's not simply those who hear what the Bible says. It's those who obey it. Those who do what it says. This is what James taught, isn't he, in chapter 1. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. The sign of a saved person is that they have a desire to do what God says. It's visible in their actions. We can get a false sense of security if we think that our right standing before God is on the basis that I've been baptized. I was baptized at Charlotte Chapel. I was baptized by Derek Prime. Or or I take communion. These things have no value if at the same time we are deliberately and continually disobeying God's word, we are unrepentantly pursuing all the things that God says we should not do, and uh, it doesn't matter if we go to Sunday school and teach the children about the right things to do, if we could persistently and unrepentantly do those things and think that somehow we are safe from the condemnation and the anger of God. That would be so foolish to find in outward religion somewhere that that is a refuge for us. Oh, no, it's not. Even being a preacher at Charlotte Chapel, that's not a refuge. 
The verse that makes every preacher quake is in James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, uh, because you know those who, who teach will be judged more strictly. Oh my goodness, that's a scary verse, isn't it? My friends, God's name is being dishonored today as people point to those who claim that they are Christians and show how they're basically engaging in all sorts of corrupt wrongdoing. God's honor is defamed. I remember one businessman I met in Spokane, and he told me that what put him off becoming a Christian was his experience of an employee in his firm who kept telling everybody that he was a Christian. He kept annoying everybody by turning the, Christian radio, uh, the radio to a Christian radio station. And yet he was the least trustworthy employee in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the business. And eventually he was fired for stealing from the business. This last week, the BBC News website has got a long article. It puts a spotlight on the televangelist Todd Kuntz in America, who's received a five-year prison sentence for failure to pay taxes on the rather large sums of money that he has uh, have been donated, I would use the word fleeced, uh, from gullible people who bought into his prosperity uh, preaching. And it speaks of how rich people, how, how uh, he's getting rich off poor Christians who are being ripped off with the false promise that if they give their seed gifts to the ministry, then that in turn would make them financially rich. Well, there's the BBC News website, long article, highlighting all the awfulness of this. God's name is being blasphemed because of you. We must not think that we will evade the condemnation and anger of God simply by saying, well, we're religious. So he's relentlessly prosecuted his case, hasn't he? We're all sinners facing the anger and condemnation of a holy God, whether you're rebellious, whether you're respectable, whether you're uh, religious, we're all in the same terrible predicament. And what hope is there in the face of what was being spoken of there in verse 16? Have a look at verse 16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. My goodness, we have a God who sees our hearts. Who knows what's going on deep down inside all of us? What can we do? I want, you, I want you to feel the weight of it. We need to feel the weight of this. I'll never forget um, an incident that happened in America. Tom, I've asked his permission to share this story. Uh, Tom was about four or five years old. And uh, maybe I've shared this before, but uh, they were driving back from the stores. And uh, he offered my wife uh, some sweets from the back of the car which is quite fascinating because he, he had not been given sweets by us. But somehow, since leaving the shop, he managed to find some sweets in his possession and he was offering them around the car. Well, a, long, a series of conversations happened. But um, that night, uh, Shona remembers it this way, uh, talking to him at the end of the day and confronting him with the fact that he was a thief. He'd broken the, the laws of the land. 
He had actually broken God's laws. He was by definition a sinner. What was he going to do? Well, Tom thought hard and long, and he came up with the answer. I'm going to change my name. And you can see the logic, can't you? You can see the logic. If Tom was a sinner, then what he needed was to change who he was. Change his name, change his identity. And there is some spiritual insight in that. We know, of course, that the, the problem is not fixed by changing your name. You're still you, whatever you get called. We're still the same people underneath. But there is a yearning in us for a new us, isn't there? A new identity. We need a radical change. We need to be forgiven for the, the messes we've made in the past. And we need a radical new change on the inside. We need a brand new me, a brand new heart. And this is the wonderful good news of the gospel. Go back to chapter 1, verse 16. This is why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. We learned from Ezekiel the prophet today, it was read uh, earlier, that God promised that one day he would act in the world for the sake of his holy name. He was fed up of having it defamed. And for his glory and for his honor, he would come and make forgiveness of his people's sins possible, wash them clean, and he would give them brand new hearts, brand new spirits by his Holy Spirit. And what Ezekiel was looking forward to was achieved by Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of how he, who was morally perfect in every way, and yet willingly came, took on human flesh, lived this life we couldn't live, went to die on a cross where God's wrath and judgment was poured out on him in the place of sinners. And what that salvation accomplishes is if we trust Christ, it means all the crud and shame of our past is, can be washed away. And what he does as we trust him is that his Holy Spirit comes into our lives and gives us brand new hearts. Our text talks about it at the end of chapter 2. He talks about what really makes a true uh, person of God, someone who belongs to the people of God. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. We need to be brand new people. We have to have brand new hearts. We need to be born again. How can we be born again? 
we must come and trust Christ. Do you remember that conversation that Nicodemus, one of the most upstanding uh, religious Jewish men of his day, uh, steeped in the scriptures, comes to Jesus late at night, and Jesus says to him, the most religious, upstanding man of his day, you must be born again. Being religious, being a religious Jew, one of the special people of God with circumcision and the law, is not enough, you must be born again. Whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish today, you must be born again. Have you been born again? You need to come to Jesus today in prayer. Repent of your, of your wrongdoing. Trust him. That is the way. It's the only place of hope. It's the only refuge. We're not asking people to be religious in Edinburgh today. We're asking people to rely on Christ, to trust in Christ, to find their refuge in Christ. In him there is forgiveness. In him there is a brand new start. In him there's hope for a broken society. In him there is hope for a restored and joyful relationship with our creator. Come to Christ today. And my friends, this is such good news. This is why we want to share it. This is why we've got these evenings coming up, if only. So we can invite our friends and neighbors to hear about this good news. This is what unites us together, this good news. We're all equally exalted as image bearers of God. We're all equally sinful as sinners. And we're all equally loved and forgiven in Christ. And so we have a profound unity today. can be part of it if you come there's a prayer of repentance it's in the bulletin you can use that this very day if you need any help there's folk at the front they'll be glad to pray with you come to Christ today let's pray